Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Ahoy, Bart. Ahoy, Jenna. You said that way more authentically than I did. Well, I was trying to say it just like uh, like Senda in uh, in Black Peter. Ahoy. <laughs> that's that's my impersonation. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, that's how you say hello. At least that's how the kids said hello to each other in Czechoslovakia in the 60s. And uh, that's because tonight we're talking about the Czechoslovak New Wave. I've hinted on on many previous episodes that we would be dealing seriously with the Czech New Wave sometime. And, uh, and this is it. But now I have to train myself to say Czechoslovak. New Wave instead of Czech New Wave because, you know, those those Slovakians had uh, had a pretty big role in what was going on in that whole scene. Are you are you coming to uh, to the Czechoslovak New Wave with any associations, Jenna? Uh, I think of some pretty wild quasi abstract stuff with a lot of mixed media and like artistic or almost cartoonish sensibilities. But I'm sure that's only a specific slice of what makes up New Wave. I'm, I'm guessing from your leading question, that's probably not the right answer. Well, not really, because probably anything that got an international release is uh, you know, of, of more artistic merit than the typical Czechoslovakian film that came out pre-New Wave. So so I'll bet, I'll bet whatever it is you're thinking of is... Czechoslovak new wave it's just hard to say that's the problem I, I think that's why in the in the 60s when people were hearing about this Czech new wave thing it uh, you know the, the label stuck because it's just so much easier to say but uh, you know for anyone who doesn't know back in the back in the old days of the USSR Czech Republic and Slovakia were a single country under a communist regime called Czechoslovakia uh, about two thirds of the people are Czech and uh, a third Slovakian, and they uh, had a uh, a film movement that actually got quite a bit of international attention. This episode, we are not going to deal with all of the Czechoslovak New Wave because it's pretty big. I mean, it's one of the major movements of the '60s. Uh, so, I decided after reading a book or two on the subject that we might want to narrow things down a bit and just deal with the movies of Milos Forman, who is by far the most well-known of the Czechoslovak New Wave directors, uh, mainly because he moved to America and started making some movies there, extremely well-known and award-winning films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus and uh, Hair and things like that. 
but he was he was also the the leading light of the Czechoslovak new wave. Uh, his his film Black Peter was one of the first films of the movement to get a lot of attention. Uh, came out in 1963, or he made it in 63. Came out in 64. He has a a particular sensibility that doesn't necessarily carry over to all of the films of the of the Czechoslovak new wave, but uh, it is very particular to to him and this you know what is sometimes referred to as the Foreman School, which includes uh, the directors Ivan Passer and uh, Jaroslav Papusek. The three of them all worked together on a lot of films. They uh, they were all. Uh, graduates of FAMU, F-A-M-U, the Prague Film School, Passer and uh, Foreman actually were there for film studies, not to, you know, they weren't studying to be directors, but they were in film production. Uh, Papusek was a sculptor who only a little bit later came to uh, do film stuff with them. But pretty much the six films we're going to talk about tonight are some combination of the three of those guys are involved in, in all of them. And they're all of a of a particular type. They're very inspired by Italian neorealism or you know cinema verite. There's a lot of improvisation and non actors in them, and uh, they you know they they have the stable of non actors. There's a a half dozen of them that that seem to be in all of these films, and they they sort of form a distinct body of work that uh, we can sort of deal with separate from the rest of the Czechoslovak New Wave, which, I mean, just for, for point of reference, some of the other big names or big movies in this film movement, uh, Closely Watched Trains by Jiri Menzel, which won the uh, the Best Foreign Language Oscar in America in 67, and Daisies by uh, Vera Gitilova, a beloved feminist anarchic classic that most people have at least seen some uh, some stills from. Uh, it's hard hard to avoid that one, and that's that's a great one. We we want to deal with all this stuff at some point, but tonight it's just the Foreman School. I don't know what else do you want to know about the Czechoslovak New Wave, Jenna? Tell you some of the the politics that were going on. Is that interesting to people? I think that's interesting. It's actually not too dissimilar to the story that we told about uh, what was going going on in Poland at this time. Uh, Stalin died in the 53 or, or so, and uh, by by 56, Khrushchev had taken over um, in the USSR, and, and things were loosening up a bit. You know, a lot of the, the Soviet bloc countries, the Eastern bloc countries were, uh, you know, they sort of had a renaissance of you know, literature and fine art and film just because, you know, they could. There was this more more emphasis on sort of freedom of expression and and that sort of thing. You know, the notable films in Poland happen a little earlier than the ones in Czechoslovakia, but it's a similar story where it's a lot of film school people and some non-film school people just sort of putting out a bunch of personal idiosyncratic works that managed to get international acclaim because they're they're interesting. I think the Czechoslovak new wave is sort of more related to the French new wave in, in that it's... That's sort of a marketing tool. You know, that name, the Czech New Wave, was sort of associated with all these films just so they could market it in America and Europe and say that, oh, here's here's the next Czech New Wave film. I mean, there's no manifesto or, you know, set philosophy behind what they were doing. But there was sort of a, I don't know, I don't want to say uniformity to what the Czechoslovak New Wave was putting out. But there is, there's sort of this idea of breaking away from the the, the socialist realist you know, style of film that dominated in the country up until then. And uh, and there's this idea that 
that no, the, these new filmmakers wanted to present the truth on film. So, I mean, it's in a variety of styles. The Foreman School is definitely more verite, you know, presenting things as if they were happening in real life. None of these are actually documentaries, but they, they have a real documentary feel. But for example, Kitalova, who I mentioned before, Daisies, is absolutely the opposite extreme, you know, totally experimental. Um, and, you know, they were encouraged in, in film school to sort of try different things. And, uh, you know, all of it was is sort of in this effort to present the truth on film that was very different than the you know, sort of optimistic, propagandistic uh, stuff that came before that was, you know, glorifying the party and idealized characters who were farmers, workers, working for the common good, that sort of thing. This movement wasn't consciously trying to say anything bad about communist government that was controlling Czechoslovakia, but in the pursuit of, of truth, I guess, some of these films did end up stepping on on some toes. And uh, in 1968, there was this Prague Spring sort of came about when uh, the president, Antonin Novotny, his administration was sort of, it sort of gave way to the reformist Alexander Dubček. There were seven months of this Prague Spring where where there's you know almost total freedom of expression, there's an artistic blossoming that you know all of the repressiveness that you associate with with communist society was dropped for a while, and then people started getting used to these sort of newfound freedoms, and then the Soviets came and uh, and invaded Czechoslovakia because they didn't like all of this freedom, this uh, sort of you know this opportunity that people were having to criticize the communist government and uh, USSR and and you know, some other. Warsaw Pact countries uh, invaded Czechoslovakia, and I always think of the movie uh, Unbearable Lightness of Being because that betrays it very vividly, this this happening. Um, but uh, yeah, after the Soviets came, came in and started normalizing, in quotation marks, uh, some of these films that could be interpreted as, as critical of communist government uh, were were banned and everybody in the film industry, you know, huge chunk of everybody working in film was fired and, you know, a whole, whole new film industry was, was created in order to bring social socialist realism back this more propagandistic feel good type type cinema. And, uh, and so by 1970, the uh, Czechoslovak new wave was pretty much done. Uh, Valerie and her week of wonders by Jaromil Gires is uh, sometimes considered the last Czechoslovak New Wave film. And a lot of the Czechoslovak New Wave directors, including Milos Forman, who we're going to talk about, and, uh, and Ivan Passer, you know, put themselves into self-imposed exile because they couldn't make the films that they wanted to make anymore. So they uh, both started making films in America after, uh, you know, in the 70s, starting in the 70s. And that was pretty much the end of, uh, of the Czechoslovak new wave. That's a little more detail than I wanted to go into since we're going to be focusing primarily just on Milos Forman and his buds. But, uh, you know, there it is. There's the whole story for, for the next time we, we delve into this stuff. I, I mean, I found this pretty interesting. Uh, just number one, so many waves throughout all these different countries, so many brand new <laughs> waves happening at the same time, which is always interesting. It's also, it was neat watching these in the context of having watched now all of these movies from the 60s for this podcast and just sort of being able to 
draw lines between other new wave movements or just other countries uh, in seeing the evolution of this ripple, you know, (laughs) wave, Um, you know, this seeing what happens, like the seed gets planted, you know, in England or something like, and you can see just how it translated throughout Europe as it moved eastward. And I, I found it very interesting to think about that watching these in part because a lot of the people involved even in these movies that we're talking about today were, you know, when they went to self-imposed exile, came back and started working with their own heroes, like, uh, like Miroslav, uh, Andrzejczyk coming back and working with Lindsay Anderson on if, or Oh, lucky man, which is one of my favorites, but it's from 1973. So, well, Lindsay Anderson was a, was a huge proponent of the Czech new wave. He said, it's very possible that the that the conditions in Czechoslovakia right now are 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 perfect for you know the best films in the world to be made here right now. I don't know what context he said that in, but he he definitely was loved this stuff. Godard, on the other hand, gave gave some of these early films terrible reviews, so he didn't he didn't like what they were doing. But you know that's Godard; he'll just you know, be contrary to be contrary. I don't know. He probably had a good reason for it, but some of these films, um, especially a couple that we're talking about tonight, Loves of a Blonde and Fireman's Ball, both got, uh, you know, a lot of international recognition. Loves of a Blonde in particular, because it sort of promised some racy art house European cinema was a hit in the U.S., but yeah, lots of other people besides Lindsay Anderson were eating this stuff up. By the late 60s, as things sort of got a little more experimental, a little, little more radical, the novelty of the movement kind of wore off a bit. And the stir that it had caused earlier in the 60s had, had waned a bit. We'll, we'll just stick with these, uh, these fairly popular examples of, of what was happening in Czechoslovakia in the 60s. And we're going to start with Concourse, which translates as concert, but it's released worldwide as audition slash talent competition 1963. It's, it's actually two short films that are kind of connected and were you know, always released together, two 40-minute films. The first half is about some community brass bands who are all practicing to be in a competition to see who the best brass band in Czechoslovakia is. And the second half is an audition of a bunch of young females. They're looking for some up-and-coming talent, female only, young and female only. And so we get to see sort of, you know, American Idol style, a series of young women getting up on stage and doing their stuff. And, you know, a lot of them are not uh, particularly talented. And that's that's sort of, you know, the inherent interest in, in these sorts of talent competition type uh, spectacles. But, you know, what's interesting about this film is that it's listed in quite a few places as a documentary. And it is very definitely not a documentary. I mean, a lot of the people in this would go on to be stars in uh, in future 
Foreman School films. I mean, you do get shots of the audience. They're very clearly documentary because they're there to watch you know, these performances and uh, don't necessarily know they're being filmed or aren't you know, performing for the camera. But for the most part, you've got people who have been told what to do in front of the camera and are doing it. And so it's sort of interesting, but also gives you a real sense that what Milos Forman and his buddies are trying to do is very much connected to, you know, cinema verite and, and documentary. What do you think of this one? Interesting, but not what I expected in a way. I don't know what I expected, but like it's it's kind of hard to know how to talk about these in a way because I feel like they're really based so much on like a gut emotional reaction to whatever's happening on the screen. So it's like if you can sit there and talk about what's happening in the movie, but it doesn't really mean anything. It's like two bands rehearsing, but that's not what the it's about. You know, it's so it's it's uh, I feel uh, a little bit at a loss for words to sort of describe it for once in my life. Don't really don't know what to say, <laughs> but I, I mean, for me, both of these, I mean, I can see why they got shoved together as, as one movie because they are kind of saying the same thing, you know, which, which to me is just basically the seriousness of mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> these like, you know, small local orchestras, bands getting together and rehearsing, and then, you know, the other side of it is just like people coming in to rehearse for singing and doesn't matter how talented you are. It just matters or whether or not you can get up there and do it. So there, there's that main girl who's like meant to be, you know, she's not untalented, but she's she gets cold feet and can't show up. And meanwhile, there's all these people that are just god awful, just belting it out. But, you know, they, they have no um, shame about it. And, you know, in the end, that's really all that matters if you want to be heard or you want to be considered, which is kind of the same thing with the bands, too. You know, it's just there's a ceiling for the level of talent that they have, especially for these conductors. But, you know, they, they're going to be damned if they don't try their hardest to make it the best of the, <laughs> the best of the, the most middling. Yeah, I mean, so much of this is about the personalities of these non-actors that they're capturing up on screen and you know plot wise both both of these sections have kind of a plot in the first one it's two young musicians who you know should be practicing for this upcoming competition but there's a motorcycle race going on so they they don't show up for the competition and they get fired by their respective bands that they're in and well not that it's much of a spoiler but uh but you know, we we find out what happens to them after they've been uh, they've been fired from these these two bands, and and in the second one, like you're saying, they're following another two young people. Vera, the one that you were talking about, who gets the cold feet and can't perform. She actually Vera Kresadlova, um, I believe that she actually ended up marrying Milos Forman. She has a role in at least a couple of these films that we're talking about in this episode. And she definitely has something. I mean, she doesn't seem like a trained actor, but she's got a personality that really comes through. And one of the two conductors in the first part, Jan Vosterschiel, he's such a colorful personality that that Foreman and, and the other two just keep bringing him back in every single one of these films. But yeah, and in the second part, there's, an, there's another girl who wants to perform and, and says 
I forget her mother's sick, so she doesn't uh, so she can get out of her hairdressing job early so she can go and perform and then gets caught in the lie. And and of course, she's not particularly talented. And she, she insists that the judge tell her right then and there if she's going to make it because she'll have to change her whole life if she does make it. And so he very cruelly tells her, no, you're just not cut out for this. And it's it's harsh, but uh, it's a comedy, too. So all of these films are are very definitely comedies. They tend towards the mean-spirited, especially the foreman ones, I would say. You know, finds the, the comedy and discomfort and cruelty and, you know, mediocrity. It's a kind of realism that's that's being exploited to show the just the, the comedy, the, the humor in everyday life. Yeah. So it's not like a harsh harsh reality of, of Italian neorealism. It's sort of, you know, here here are people just struggling to get noticed and uh, and... And there's a lot of comedy there. And that sort of runs through all of these. Yeah, I mean, the strongest voice that comes through both of these really is the is Milos Forman's, which is the best part of it. I mean, I would say, you know, he's definitely mining the awkward humor. I didn't feel that any of these were actually that cruel until later on. And we'll talk about it. I actually find it quite gentle because it's talking about these situations that aren't are anything but life and death but are being treated as if they were life or death and not by the camera and not by the director, but by these characters internally. So there is this pressure that they're putting on themselves. And then you have this great sort of detached observational camera watching everything and the way that everything's framed, you can feel the smile behind the camera, which sounds cheesy as hell, but it's the only way I know how to put it. Because there's all of these really great close-ups on faces and expressions. And it's such like a loving observation. Everyone's always framed really dynamically and well and interestingly. Nobody's ever made to look like a fool. But it also has that lingering effect where if you are watching somebody long enough as something else is happening around them and you can see all these things being calculated behind their eyes, it, you know, it starts to just become funny. Basically, what what The Office launched its entire brand <laughs> of humor on, you know, it's this idea of the camera as the truth teller lingering and waiting as something is happening and not pulling away and not being caught up in the action, but instead being so focused on the people and the emotions that that becomes the action of the scene and not so much even what's taking what's transpiring between the characters I think there's a certain amount of cruelty to the way that Milos Forman uses his camera to to look at women, actually. Like in, in all four of his films that we're talking about, I think he really just sort of will linger on one young woman after another. And it's sort of asking you, is she pretty? Is she not pretty? Is she, you know, just you could be generous and say he's trying to find the, the beauty, the physical beauty in each one. But there's also this sort of, cruelty as to oh she's not you know she, oh she's a looker she's not a looker i mean that that sort of becomes a subject of a lot of these films but it also sort of it may, made me a bit uncomfortable i mean all of the men in these films are they're they're pretty much grotesque i mean there there's no sense that that any any men in any of these films are are any kind of a prize for anybody but there does seem to be this judgment of the you know, physical qualities of, of the of the young women in all of these. And uh, and I and I found that a bit cruel. That's interesting. I really didn't get that at all. Uh, like I really 
I mean, there's definitely, I see what you're talking about, but for me, it felt more like the internal judgment of these own characters or the judgment, like, or, or the projection of the, these pig headed men on these women. It didn't feel to me like Milos Foreman's uh, idea. And, and that comes out and we can talk about that, especially in um, loves of a blonde, which I think it, it has heavily plays into but I mean, it, he's definitely playing with what is beautiful. I, I don't know that I go as far as to say that he's doing it cruelly, but we can, I think that, I mean, the, I think the best thing about these, these two movies at the beginning is really that you're, he's setting up all of these themes that come back over and over and over again, never mind the same actors, even the theme of, of just bands and, and uh, conductors, I think was, is pretty interesting that this is something that is you know figures so heavily into his career and then later on even i mean like it basically is the same thing with amadeus yeah well i think ivan passer is the is the one who's really brings music into into all of these films he co-wrote audition and talent competition all of these performers conductors all of these musicians that are in all of these films seem to be passers influence but obviously it's an interest of foreman's as well you know when when sculpting comes into it that's clearly Paposek, but the, the musicians seem to be passers influence well it's such a fertile space for observation <laughs> i i don't know if you know this about me bart but i uh played the baritone horn for several years and i was part of the new york citywide marching band <laughs> hmm I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I had to march in all of those terrible parades in Manhattan. <laughs> oh, I think you did tell me you played in the Macy's Day Parade. It wasn't the one. Macy's Day. It was never the it was never the really fun ones. It was always the dumb ones like the Columbus Day or like the St. Patrick's Day or like, you know, these, these like big but not like really exciting ones. And then I have to wear like a white top hat and a coat with tails. It was... <laughs> <laughs> But anyhow, um, so I'm very, very much, and I don't even, I haven't touched my dear instrument since. I never owned one. So there's, there, that's part of the reason why I haven't picked it up ever again. But uh, I really enjoyed being in a band. It's such an interesting dynamic, especially, I mean, I was in high school when I was from junior high to high school, I was doing this. So it was not, you know, I'm also working with this exact level of like mediocre. <laughs> you know, there's people in the class that were talented, but nobody was like a virtuoso. And it was so much of like people that were there because they were you know, they, they liked the music, but they didn't, they didn't so much love practicing or, or, you know, I don't know, it's just something to do. I mean, that's part of why I was doing it, you know? So, so you get this really interesting mix of like, you know, people that are, that are there for so many different reasons. And then you have the conductor who's basically trying to play out this game of control, you know, like trying to herd cats. <laughs> <laughs> So it's interesting, too, to just see somebody trying so hard to control a bunch of people that they, at the end of the day, can't really. You know, the conductor is is a lead, and but also the backup when you're in when you're playing. You know, you you watch what their their instruction is, but you also are meant to know what the instruction is. And, you know, so there's this mix of, you know, I never got to a high enough level, I guess, that that the conductor was continually on my mind the entire time. So, you know, it's just, it, it's fun. It's just fun to like relive 
those <laughs> those years and think about that time and think about what I what I really liked about it and what was what was interesting about it and to sort of go back and like observe myself through watching these um these movies but it's an interesting space that doesn't get enough attention quite frankly in in the world of cinema and like that was one of the things when um when Whiplash came out part of the appeal of that movie to me was really the 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 group dynamic of the band <laughs> yeah in in Foreman no one is trying to be the best they're just trying to distinguish themselves from the from the crowd in some way right but uh yeah we've got the mediocre uh, guitar player and the mediocre trombonist from uh, from Concourse in the, in the next film that we're going to talk about. You want to you want to tackle that one? So the next film is Black Peter, Czerny Peter, nineteen sixty four. like the movie that made Milos Forman. You know, as, as we mentioned, it's like this really the slice of life film. It doesn't have a plot so much as it's a series of scenes that are kind of strung together, but it does have a plot, but that's not the the plot. But um, our star is Peter, who's a teenager, and he has been forced by his parents to get a job at a local grocery store because they think he has no ambition in life and they this is to them what he should be doing. And at the grocery store, he's just sort of, he's meant to stand around and covertly watch shoppers and make sure they're not stealing. He doesn't really get how to do it, and he kind of has no interest in doing it. So the film kind of wanders as as he wanders away from this job. At one point, he follows a man who he thinks is stealing, and he just follows him straight out of the store and across town and then just never, never comes back. He doesn't even confront him because he's a teenager. He doesn't know what to do about it. So the other sort of half of this movie is this, the fact that he has a crush on this girl, Pavla. Then there's these two other guys that keep harassing him for just literally no reason. Like they're just trying to like seem tough and they think he's an easy target. This this Chenda and Zidenyek. <laughs> And they're they're both like dumb as bricks and they're not terribly threatening. They're just like they're just a nuisance, basically. And even Peter is like, he, you know, he's not going to like fight back, but he also just kind of can walk away and like nothing happens. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's it. That's that's the movie. And so we sort of we see all these characters just go to a dance or, you know, we get a lot of scenes of Peter being lectured by his father uh, who wants the best for him, but is also just totally out of touch with what the kids are up to these days. Well, yeah. And it's a lot of nonsense that comes out of the father's mouth. Like he's, he's just full of these platitudes that none of them really make sense. He just wants to say something that will inspire his son to have some direction. And it's, uh, and that's really mind for, for the comedy there. I thought those were the most entertaining parts. I mean, this whole movie is is entertaining. I thought this was just so funny and brilliant. It is. It's so clearly influenced by that kind of kitchen sink drama, but it's totally its own thing at the same time. Again, it's like so much about everyone living in their own heads and any sort of, you know, small victory they can get is like all that they need. It's a weird space, I think, in a lot of these movies. 
And it's probably one of the the appeals in, for me in a lot of ways is that it's about people that are pretty much fine. <laughs> like they're all doing fine. Like they're all have everything they could really need, except that they're all, they all kind of want more, but they don't know what. They're all sort of picking on something. There's like one thing that they figure, oh, if I could just do this one thing, then, you know, that would fix everything. And then they get it and then it doesn't fix everything. And, you know, there's just this great little universal thing that isn't based on any like real intense drama. You know, nobody's like starving and, you know, nobody's dying. And and it's like, it's just this nice, very like day-to-day life kind of thing. But it's also, it's just, it's so, it's shown so well, it's directed so well, and it's framed so well, and it just is, has such a great sense of humor without being like, laugh out loud funny or even trying for humor. And this was just like everything all in, in one movie. All of these these movies have humor and repetition, like you see the same gags repeated over and over. And I think this movie doesn't overplay that. In our introduction, we're referring to the the scene where where Chenda is har- harassing Peter for not saying hello properly, saying "Ahoy!" I said "Hello, nice and loud to you," and you just said "Ahoy." And uh, it's kind of an endless moment that becomes sort of a punchline. So every time somebody says "Ahoy," after that in this film, you get a nice chuckle out of it. But it's some of these later films by Foreman, I think they sort of overplay the repetition and sort of these, there's more slapsticky type silent comedy type gags in there. But I, I think Black Peter just nails it, gets, gets the comedy perfect. He doesn't take anything too far. It's nice balance of just, you know, this great snapshot of youth culture in Czechoslovakia in 1963, you know, with light humor, nothing, you know, nothing is happening that you don't see in your own life. Like it's very relatable. You can connect to all of these characters. It's a, you know, totally universal kind of story. This is what life is like for young people everywhere. And just, yeah, real, real pleasure to watch. It's it's honestly one of the best teen movies I've, I've seen the best depiction of teenagers that I've seen on film. You could have said that this was shot yesterday and it'd be like, yeah, <laughs> Reminded me of Gregory's Girl. I don't know if you've seen that film, but that's one of my favorites. I've seen it so many times. And this this did a lot of the same things, you know, 20 years earlier and just as well. It's yeah, because it's like it's this that relatable frustration of feeling aimless, you know, in, in a world that demands structure. But that structure doesn't do anything to like alleviate our emotional needs. <laughs> like the structure itself is completely aimless. Which then makes this a really great commentary on repression and the dreary working class boredom that comes with having just enough, but not having an ability to really move beyond it, which is worse than drama because that's like impenetrable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he's living the working class dream, Peter, uh, you know, and he doesn't have anywhere to go from there except for what management in the at the supermarket. <laughs> Wow. You know, and that's like, that's what his father's sitting there advocating for. You need to appreciate all of this. And it's like, eh. <laughs> yeah, this whole generation clash is, it seems to be a big theme in all of these movies too. I mean, in even in uh, audition, it's these older middle-aged or older men who are having to deal with these younger people who are not doing what they want them to. But in, but in Black Peter, it makes it, 
it's even more specifically about this generational divide. You've got the, you know, the manager of the grocery store who's trying to explain to Peter what what he's supposed to be doing as this sort of store detective, but is constantly contradicting himself and saying, I don't think that any of our customers are thieves, but you know, every so often it happens that somebody takes something and and it's mocking of both sides of that. It's sort of, you can see it from both perspectives, how these aimless, dumb kids don't know what to do with themselves and don't act responsibly, but also these adults who think they know what what's, these young people should be doing are just full of contradictions and bad advice. And and that's that's a theme that is in all of these. Generation gaps and, and just young people versus middle-aged people versus old people seem to be the structuring device for, for just about all of these movies. Yeah, the movie that this reminded me of, though I'll say just on as a note for Gregory's Girl, this, this also reminded me of like every song Bell and Sebastian has ever put out. <laughs> um, but uh, th- it really reminded me of The Graduate. The, the plastic scene from The Graduate, but for like an hour and a half, <laughs> which, you know, is is great. It's like this mix, too, of also just like a an aimless, horny teenager. You know, there's all of this. Uh, there's a whole scene where the store manager gets these this artwork delivered or he he's gifted this artwork. And one of it is like, you know, some what is it, like Odalique or something. It's like some French mm. painting of, uh, you know, a naked woman, like something like classic you know, classic nude kind of thing. It's nothing like garish, but everyone's just like, so like they're all knocked out by this, this picture, <laughs> you know, all these like horny guys, plus the, the teen boy who's never seen a naked lady. And, and, you know, in the end he ends up breaking the painting by mistake. And so it's a, it's a print. And so he takes the print home, which also leads to this great scene with the, the father talking to Peter about like, look at this, this picture we have of like mother Mary on the wall. And doesn't it, it's amazing how her eyes follow you as you walk (laughs) around the room. Like this is high art. This is high art. You're like, like just because her eyes follow you, like it's the weirdest statement. Yes. See, I see some cruelty in that. And it's, I guess it's a gentle mockery of the lower classes, the uh, uneducated who still want to, you know, have, are are trying to have an appreciation for art and, and the finer things. But, you know, there is there is a hint of cruelty there, particularly in the in the foreman that uh, it's good satire, but it, it is it's uncomfortable. And uh, it's so funny. It makes me think, though, that like, you know, we don't think of the fact that high art is just porn. <laughs> <laughs> like, it makes me think like, you know, yeah, why is this considered, you know, like there's all this everyone's going to sit here and be reverent over this, this painting. That's just a naked lady. It's just a stark naked lady sitting there. And, and this is what we call high art. But all it is, is this Peter in a field uh, unfolding it so he can look at it alone in the field. <laughs> it, it plays both sides of that, you know, but I don't feel that it's making any sort of statement that's damning. It really, to me felt more like it just, it, it's that it's, it's again, it's a disconnect. So it's like taking a situation that you know you could call shameful and just putting it so far out at arm's length like you know putting giving that distance between it so that as you watch this guy watching this woman on the print you know you sort of are thinking about all of these things at the same time and the judgment kind of comes from your discomfort if you have it or your whether or not you agree so like there's this there's just so much that's being left unsaid that it never felt damning. There are movies that I think are damning. So I'm with you. 
I, I don't think you're wrong, but it just didn't it didn't strike me that way. He's definitely got a lighter touch in this one, but I also think that he's seeing the, these kitchen sink dramas coming out of England. Possibly, it sees an opportunity to to add a little, uh, you know, a little extra cruelty by making his films comedies, so he can you know get some satire and some barbs in there, all in the, all in the name of making people laugh. And even in this film, we've got you know the most typical British New Wave kitchen sink uh, dramatic element, the un- unwanted pregnancy. Pavla, you know, it's very glancingly referred to. It's a, you know, very subtly addressed, but she's pregnant and we hardly hear anything about it. But you know that this is informing everything that she's doing. And, you know, Peter doesn't know anything about it, and, but he thinks that she's as innocent as he is. But yeah, it's sort of his his dreams get dashed and he doesn't really know why. But but we know why you know, it's handled in a very subtle way. But it, this is definitely the most kitchen sink of, of all of these films. The next film we're going to talk about is Intimate Lighting. This one is actually directed by Ivan Passer. feature that he made in the 60s. I think he co-wrote every one of these films that we're going to talk about. Um, the like Black Peter was written by Foreman, Passer, and, and uh, Jaroslav Papusek, the other major figure in, uh, in the Foreman school. This next movie, 1965's Intimate Lighting, is written by Papusek and Passer, directed by Passer, and another Vaklav Sasek, who seems to be the, the sort of fourth less recognized member of the Foreman School, maybe just because he never directed anything himself. He was just a writer, but his hand is in most of these films as well. But I mean, this this is the most plot-free of any of these films. It's really just a total slice of life thing. We've we've got Bombas is uh, in a band in this village, and there's going to be a big performance. So he's invited an old friend, Peter, to play as a soloist. He's a, he's a cellist, I think. So what we get is uh, Peter coming to town before this performance and just spending some time with, with his old friend Bombas. I think Peter is from Prague or, you know, lives in Prague now. He grew up in this village, but is, is coming back. And, you know, so it's a couple of middle-aged guys. Peter is, has brought with him his young girlfriend, Stepa, who is played by Vera Kresadlova, who is in you know, audition. So Peter and Stepa are staying at Bombas's house and they meet his wife, who, you know, looks a lot like Stepa, only 15, 20 years older than their kids. And they're also living with Bombas's mother and father. And Bombas plays music with his father that the two of them go and, and play funerals all the time to make money. And, uh, you know, they use their money from funerals to fix up their house. So their house keeps, you know, expanding. And that seems to be the the extent of their ambition. Keep playing funerals and keep making their house nicer. Yeah, there's really not a whole lot more to this story than that. And you just see these these three generations interacting with each other. And it's it's a lot of gentle comedy. I really enjoyed this film a lot, a lot more than you did, I think. Just I... 
I sort of went into it not knowing what it was going to be and was not prepared for how slice of life this would be and that there wouldn't be like even without any kind of plot to drive the film along, I thought it it flew by. It's just so just a, a great gentle comedy. And yeah, and it, it's it heavily involves musicians like like we see in, in a lot of these. We get a lot of this is taken up with Bombus and Peter and Bombus's father and the, the pharmacist comes in as the as the fourth member of the quartet and while they're practicing a piece just for fun, you know, not, not rehearsing for any particular performance, but just, you know, for the love of music, they're playing together. And while they're doing that, uh, Stepa is outside just kind of playing with kittens and interacting with the kids and, uh, you know, some of the local villagers and just, um, making it really clear that she's still really young and, you know, has, has very different priorities than the, the middle-aged or, are actually more similar to what the the older generation seem to seem to have here, but that seems to be, like I was saying, the the real structure behind this one, like a lot of them, is just comparing the generations. And there's no, you know, there's not a lot of conflict. There's there's no conflict at all in this film, but um, there's this examination of the different generations. There's there's no conflict really. It's just sort of putting them, you know, people of different ages side by side and seeing how they interact with each other. And I thought it was a real pleasure, and I, I think that. You know, if if I were to watch this film again, it could become a real favorite of mine. What do you think? I didn't get it. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it was too slice of life for me. I I found it confusing and hard to watch and boring. <laughs> I mean, there there was some interesting parts, but they were all sort of at the end. Like I didn't think its attempts at humor were very funny. It was maybe too gentle. It just didn't seem to have much to say other than these sort of broad strokes of youth versus aging and single versus married and city versus suburb or whatever like i it just didn't i didn't find it recognizable at all it was sort of structured around gags sort of like a jacques tati movie or something but in such a gentle subtle way that you don't that's why i think watching it a second time i would enjoy it even more because you realize oh this is just a setup for a gag but it's all so low-key that you don't realize that that's why what's happening on the screen is happening and and i love that about it i especially love comedies where i'm desperate to return to it just so i can see the gags and how they're set up better the, the second time or third or fourth time around but uh yeah it's it's another one that's hard to say a whole lot about because it's about whether you connect to to the vibe or not and it's I think part of the problem for me with this one is that it lacked the close-ups and the framing on the, the faces of people. Everything was more of a medium shot than a close-up. And it just, I, I felt so, it's like if you're going to be this gentle, if you're going to be this sort of broad and in, in this slice of life, then I have to connect to some of these characters. And I just didn't feel, I like, I, I couldn't tell anyone apart. <laughs> <laughs> It might have been me. I mean, like, maybe if I rewatch this, I'll think it's brilliant. But like, I was I felt sort of baffled by this one. Like, it was okay. I didn't like hate it or anything. But I just didn't really I didn't get anything out of it. I mean, there there's one scene like literally in the last five minutes, I thought was the best part of the entire film where, you know, this older lady talks about how there's this clock in the house that doesn't work. But she keeps winding it because that's her part of her routine. And then they all stand up to toast and these like frozen drinks that they're drinking like won't come out of the glass and they're all just standing there with the drink, you know, not not dripping. 
and they're waiting for it to slide down, which, you know, it just kind of felt like it, it definitely is in the same vein as these other movies, you know, talking about, you know, waiting for something to happen kind of humor, you know, or of like the humor of people waiting for something to happen and, and sort of the, again, small victories and maybe in, in the sort of like the doldrums of day to day life. But yeah. See, there was a lack of cruelty to this one that I really enjoy that, that separated it from the form and films. Like it's not really casting a critical eye on anybody except in the mildest of, of ways. You know, a lot of scenes were, were just like, you know, what I enjoy about something like, uh, you know, Piero LeFou, where you're just watching these very watchable characters goof around on screen for a while. And, you know, a lot of it is, well, it's just fun to watch Steppa doing exercises in bed and Peter messing around with her while, while she's doing it. And just, you know, little, little things like that. And I also, this, you're right, there isn't as much attention paid to the faces of the people. It's a lot more formalist in a lot of ways. Like the camera work seemed a lot more intentional in this film. And I think that that may be why maybe there was less attention paid to close-ups because a lot of the gags are sort of these these payoffs where you get these wide shots and then you have one guy in a, a tuxedo come urinate against a wall and then several more come and in the foreground you see this this leg sticking up in the air. And then one of these guys who's peeing against the wall comes and, you know, talks to this person and, and you realize he's telling her this sunbather to leave because there's a funeral happening there. And it's just a lot of really good visual gags like that, that you don't get in these other movies. So I, I think it's a fair trade-off uses comedy a little differently than the, than the Foreman directed films do. I guess there's just sort of something about these movies that are about holding patterns where if you're just going to put the audience in a holding pattern to talk about holding patterns, it just doesn't, <laughs> it does, it doesn't spark anything in me. Well, the other thing that uh, jumped out for me with this movie is it really reminded me of the Christoph Zanussi film, The Structure of Crystals that we talked about in our Polish episode. A big chunk of this film is, you know, Peter and Bombas getting drunk one night with each other and just talking about what they've done with their lives and how what one has done is not necessarily more valuable. The one who's gone off to Prague isn't, you know, hasn't necessarily done more with his life than the one who stayed in the little village. And I have to believe that Zanussi was completely inspired by this movie for the structure of crystals. And you really like that one. And it doesn't, there's not much, you know, plot wise, there's not a whole lot of difference between the two. I thought about that movie too. The The one line that made me laugh in this one was uh, about no more concerts, just funerals for me. <laughs> but what was it about the structure of crystals that, uh, that worked for you and, and, you know, didn't work in this one? It's just that, that the characters were so much more defined and they were clear. And, and that movie was just so much more charming. I mean, it really like it, it was shot more engagingly um the you know it's like i don't need plot like you know that's not my problem i i just need like someone i can hold on to <laughs> and i didn't think i like again everyone in this was so interchangeable to me that i didn't i couldn't i couldn't keep them straight even in watching them from scene to scene so you know i i could understand what was happening in the scene but i couldn't like piece together who was who and and that's probably my fault you know like it's tough sometimes there's certain movies that i think are hard to watch at home versus 
in a movie theater because of just the nature of them. And, you know, I try to give my full focus to, to these movies when I'm watching them, especially for a podcast. But like, even, even then it wasn't holding my focus. So I don't know. I mean, it sounds like it's my problem. (laughs) Well, I, we also see a lot of this from Stepa's viewpoint that the young woman, and she's, you can't, don't confuse her with anybody else. And I, I feel like if, you know, if you watching a lot of this through her eyes, it's, it's easy to, I don't know. I think she's pretty easy to connect to. About what getting married. I mean, like who cares? Like that's the <laughs> stuff. It's like, it was so pedestrian. Like, I, I mean the one, the thing I liked that, that she was involved in is when the older woman's talking about how she used to work out every day <laughs> and keep her figure. I thought that was like a fun conversation, but you know, there was just, it, it was just so like, there's a degree of people that just are so content in, in nothingness that just, you know, I, I can't, I can't relate. <laughs> well, I'm going to call my, this one, my favorite of the, of the Czech new wave, the Czechoslovak new wave films we're, we're discussing. Wow. Um, but clearly you disagree. I'm amazed. I, I, you know, I mean, like I, it makes me want to watch it again because I, I just, clearly didn't get what you got out of it but i believe you i believe there's something there <laughs> <laughs> but the next one i loved a lot which was you know love loves of a blonde <laughs> From 1965, it's another Milos Forman movie, and this is another one where everything he was doing was gold. I think this is, I don't know, is this his most celebrated film, you would say? Maybe the next one. It could be. It's his most popular internationally, anyway. And and Loves of a Blonde has more of a plot, but it's also not plot-centric. It's, you know, the same old stuff. Andula, who's played by uh, Hanna Brehova... Maybe I'm saying that right. Um, she is a non. She wasn't. She was the the ex sister in law of Milos Forman. Oh, I didn't see that detail. And a non actor, he got her to star in this movie, and she's brilliant. She's wonderful in this, and uh, she's a teen girl in a small town, and she dreams about getting married, and she has a boyfriend that gave her a ring, but it's sort of like a superficial relationship like she has these like you know friend who's asking her about him and she doesn't really seem to know too much about him quite frankly and she's also like talking about other guys she's flirted with and seen before and you know she seems very you know young and naive and then a bunch of soldiers get called into town to come and court these factory these these female factory workers and it's it's like a, a bit of a flop we get this really great scene of these three total loser soldiers you know, bungling their attempts to woo a table of, of attractive women. And, you know, they send a bottle of wine and it ends up at this other table with women who are more like, I would say they're more traditional looking. They're not as trendy as the table that they were trying to send the original bottle of wine to. 
more they're more plain but they're all like pretty attractive so i think that's that was a, a point of humor i mean you were probably going to say that was cruel but i, I will talk it about was, it they're very they're very specifically called ugly compared to the girls at the other table in the film right but then you look at them and they're not <laughs> <laughs> so you know i think that's part of it that's the joke is that like the, these these all you look at these men and they all look like complete schlubs but um and so anyhow um andula ends up in a bit of a meet cute with the piano player who is a younger, more attractive, but also kind of mediocre looking guy named Milda, 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 uh, at this dance hall. And he really lays it on thick and he gets her to come up to his room, even though she knows he's being like super predatory and they end up having this intimate night together where, you know, like both in that he peer pressures her into having sex, but also that um, she shares with him that she's had like an abusive childhood and that she has trust issues. And, you know, of course then Milda promises the world to her and he says, well, come visit me in Prague, you know, all of this stuff. Cause this is a, basically a one night stand. And um, so Andula takes him to heart and she breaks up with her original boyfriend and then she packs up packs a bag and goes to Prague and then she arrives at his parents place and his parents are like who <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of the plot of this <laughs> it was brilliant it was brilliant for its empathy a really interesting type of empathy where it really shows you the cruelties of life but I think that it, it, it's always empathetic to its main character I don't think there is any point in which it's doing anything where the movie is being cruel to her you know, obviously, like this was a part written, blah, yada, yada, yada. But like, you know, there's never judgment on these girls from the camera. They're all sort of like caught in this like crap male society. And the men are very so clearly being portrayed as complete buffoons or complete jerks. And none of these women and they're all played up for laughs, these these guys. And none of these women are you know really are really played for that even like the table of the ugly girls um are all seen getting the best of these guys at the end of the day and they're seen being disappointed and they're seen you know feeling like well, what 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 don't we have that that other table has and then these guys end up you know when this one dude is, is actually married he tries to take his wedding ring off and it flies across the dance hall and he ends up on his hands and knees under the same table of the woman that that he just took the wine they sent this wine bottle and then took it away and he gets all this drink spilled on him and she gets to sort of smirk at him and then walk away and you know they they end up with nothing and the women end up you know leaving but it's not it doesn't shy away from how just evil and cruel these guys are to them it doesn't shy away from the fact that you know they li they're living in a society where they're experiencing this stuff daily you know, and they're probably telling themselves in the mirror this stuff daily and they're probably internalizing all of it. So this is what a lot of people have to deal with on uh, today, right? You know, it's the same thing. There's always this ever judgmental eye of society that's on people. And when you're put in this position of being just once removed from it to look at the actual situation with a more critical eye and this observational eye that Milos Forman has, then you see just the reality of it, which is that, yeah, like, you know, you can sit there and be like, oh, those women are dogs, you know, but then you look at who sang it and then you look at look at these women in comparison to the other women. They're actually pretty much the same. They just again, the other women are trendier, like they have, you know, a little more makeup on and they have a haircut that's a little more modern. So, you know, I, I, I thought this was like a really 
really empathetic movie. And that's not even to, to touch upon what happens to our main character. Well, even those schlubby guys are there's some empathy shown towards them. They've come to this dance hall because they've been told, oh, you know, there are these girls who work in a factory who haven't seen men in in months and that you need to go and show them a good time. So they're, you know, these middle aged guys, some of them are married who don't know what to do, don't know how to show these girls a good time. So they're, you know, a lot of the the shtick there is just them going back and forth and being like, I don't what are we supposed to do? I will send them a bottle of wine and that goes wrong. And just like their clumsiness is, you know, it's there's cruelty there, but there is this empathy because they've been put into this situation where they're supposed to perform this ritual that they don't even know how to how to go about, you know, doing it properly. So, you know, we feel a little bit sorry for them, too. Well, who who hasn't been in a situation where, you know, you were trying to get your crush and you end up with someone you, <laughs> you know, don't even care about? I mean, like, you know, that's that's totally empathetic. But that's not to say that these guys aren't buffoons, you know? So, so yeah, like I, I'm, I'm with you. Like there, there's never anything that's played for pure comedy. It's like, you know, they're all realistic. Everyone is, feels real here. They're varying degrees of selfish, but they're, they're always human. I think this particular scene that we're talking about goes on for too long. This is where Foreman's repetition got to be a little bit too much for me, like I thought that scene where these three soldiers are trying to get the Yondula and her two friends just goes on and on and on. And it, it gets too slapsticky. I, I got I got impatient with it. And, uh, you know, there's another scene at the end where Milda's parents won't let him sleep in the same room as, you know, once they finally allow her to spend the night. And she she sleeps in his in Milda's bed, but his parents won't let him sleep in there, too. So he's in the, you know, sleeping in the bed with the two of them. And then there's a lot of wrestling over the blankets. And it's not quite as hilarious as Milos thinks it is, but they let it go on. He lets it go on and on and on. But I do really like the two Milda's parents a lot. His mother and father, they're they're back and forth like the, the mother in particular, just her outrage and confusion about this girl who's shown up at their door to stay with with Milda is, uh, you know, she's just beside herself. And, you know, there, there are a couple of non-actors, like just about everybody in all of these movies, they just have something, have a lot of character, have a lot of personality in these bits that they're told to perform on film. They, they do it perfectly. There's, it's so funny. And the father is just as confused, but a little more open-minded and saying, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's not her fault that our son invited her to town. And this couple shows up again, actually, in the, in the final film that we watched for this episode. Not, uh, not quite as entertainingly, but they were the highlight for me of this film. Yeah, the uh, Milda is actually played by Shenda from Black Peter. He's a really memorable presence who quit acting after this film. Like he's sort of the the, the big star of these these Foreman films, but then he he just kind of quit. Whereas whereas a lot of these other non actors kept doing more and more films for these guys and and got to you know kind of have acting careers after this. But. Well, I was reading, I think, in Senses of Cinema, maybe, the, about that they were saying that Milos Horman would withhold the script from these non-actors because he didn't want their like them to go home and have their wives direct the film for him. <laughs> uh, and so he would they would get to, to set and then he would just he would go into depth about their character and then recite the script from heart 
and then tell them whatever parts of this you remember, let's do it right now and shoot it. So a lot of the stuff, a lot of the dialogue and the action ended up being improvised by people, which gave them at least enough wiggle room and freedom to, I, I think, get natural enough and not feel too self-conscious. But, you know, the parents we got to talk about, because I thought you say it went on too long. I thought it went on exactly the right amount of time because it was like this nagging mother. You know, it's like poor Angela shows up. And she's asking for him and the father's totally not aware of the situation and says like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's not here. Like, come back. And then she kind of comes back again and says, actually, I can't leave because the front door is locked and I don't even know where to look. You know, like she she sort of it becomes clear that she is really like stuck at their doorstep. And the meanwhile, the mother is slowly it's all slowly dawning on her what's happening. And she wants to know everything about it. She wants to know every little detail. And she also is so upset and angry that her son would be doing this or that this like, you know, hussy thought she could just pick up and come here and stay. And so the mother is like fighting between wanting to say that out loud and also not wanting to be rude <laughs> just in case. So it's like this great, like horrible tension between Poor Andula, who who's realizing, who's also very slowly realizing that this this was a huge mistake, and of course uh, Milda hasn't come back, and and he's like out with some chick somewhere, you know, nobody knows where Milda is. Then when he finally does come back at like one a.m. or something, yeah, the parents are like, "You're not staying in this room with her," you know, and and he doesn't know. First off, they come out and they're like, "There's so you know, Angela is here for you," and they're like, "He's like who?" <laughs> <laughs> and and it's so and this is like a one bedroom apartment so everyone can hear everything that's happening uh and then he comes over and, and has no idea like she's first she's asleep and so she's her face is covered and he has absolutely no idea who she is and you know of course she can hear that because he's standing in the room and then she's crying and, and he's like oh no no uh, i love you baby you know like he's trying to like make up for the fact but he also is it's totally insincere and then in the end he ends up being shoved literally in between his two parents in bed while his father is desperate to get to sleep and the mother can just not cannot shut up about <laughs> the situation that he's put her in and then to even turn the dagger once more you have Angela who's now getting closer and closer and closer creeping towards this bedroom door because she can hear everybody arguing. She wants to hear about what, and of course it's about her. So she's getting more and more visibly upset. And it's just this great like sequence. That's it's sad because you feel for her. Uh, and she's been so used so cruelly by Milda. Who's just like a complete piece of shit. <laughs> you know, he's not shown that way, but he is like, we all know he's a total piece of shit. And but it's funny because it's like this totally relatable reaction that she has to just get closer and closer to hearing just them going on and on about how much they don't care about her. And then, you know, it's sad because it's so awkward and it's such a horrible thing to have happen to you. But then it's funny because it gets edited in this great way where like we see her sort of like creeping approach and we see them this sort of ridiculous like bed, like none, no one's fitting in the bed. I just it was it was perfect. I thought like that was like the exact right amount of humor because I'm with you like when he tries to go too hard into the, the slapstick, it doesn't work which I think is a, the biggest problem I have with the next movie. But 
for this, it was just the right amount of realism for me to find it like the slapstick to be more believable in this scenario, because I just, I know all of these characters. <laughs> yeah. Well, the next film, possibly the most celebrated of uh, Mulish Foreman's Czech films is 1967's The Fireman's Ball. a bit of a bomb when it came out when it you know didn't didn't do that well in, in Czechoslovakia and wasn't that acclaimed internationally even though it got a pretty big release because Foreman kind of blames the the lack of a main character so there's not a single focus in this film to sort of get you through all of the you know slapstick shenanigans of these firemen who are trying to put on a ball and and making a total muddle of it but this is one that's sort of grown in estimation over the years has become sort of a cult classic. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it wasn't necessarily Foreman's intention to make this film a satire of communist government, but it very clearly is, you know, to watch this film and to watch the sort of petty grievances of all these firemen trying to organize this fun time for the community. It comes off like, uh, you know, Death of Stalin or something where it's just a bunch of incompetent people who have their own self-interest at heart who are just, you know, nobody can agree on anything and, and just just make a bungle of things. I mean, he, at the time, Foreman said that, oh, all governments are this way. You know, if, if you want to see this as an analogy, this is not specifically about communist government or democratic government or anything. It's just bureaucracy and how incompetent people who are trying to, you know, take charge, work as a team, a muddle is always made of it. But uh it's, it's come to be very closely associated with communism and critical of, of Soviet rule. And after the Soviets invaded and, uh, and the normalization began, this was definitely one of the first films to be banned because it's kind of impossible to watch without seeing it as critical of communism. So I think that's why it's, it's one of Foreman's more beloved movies now, because it just seems so trenchant. Whether, whether that was intentional or not. But uh, like Loves of a Blonde, it was written by by all four of these guys, Foreman, Passer, Jaroslav Papusek, and Vaclav Sasek, who I mentioned for Intimate Lighting, sort of the, the fourth lesser-known guy. So Loves of a Blonde and, and The Fireman's Ball are both pure Foreman school. It's got the whole team there. And this is, this is Foreman's first film in color, the first film we're talking about here that's in color. It definitely has a documentary feel about it and that you're just sort of watching these regular people go about their business but but sort of structure around everything going wrong so it feels a little more structured a little more planned out than than some of the others i mean they they have this table full of raffle prizes that are slowly over the course of the evening getting stolen and the one guy whose job it is to make sure that nobody takes these things is making a mess of trying to keep people's hands off of them and and a, a big chunk of the film is taken up with they decide they're going to have a beauty contest at this ball. You know, without even thinking about how they're going to go about doing this, they decide, oh, let's just pick the eight prettiest girls in the room at this dance 
and uh, have them get on stage and we'll, we'll judge who's the prettiest. So you've got these like old grotesque men who are wandering around the dance floor trying to pick out the prettiest girls and no one is agreeing at all on who the prettiest is and whether they should be looking at their breasts or looking at their legs. And it's, you know, it's very much like what I was talking about, where we're asked as the audience to to judge all of these young women ourselves because the camera is doing that, you know, showing their you know, their legs and their breasts and, and their faces. And, and we're supposed to be saying, oh, they're not pretty enough to be in the contest ourselves when it, you know, feels cruel to me. And, and of course, there are like important people at the ball who they're saying, oh, we've got to put his daughter on the list because, you know, he's important and, you know, just put, put her name on. And, and of course, she's, she's a little plumper than the rest, but she, you know, she has to be a part of it. F- favoritism and that sort of thing that can be construed as critical of communist government. They're looking for eight and they, they finally come up with seven. And, you know, you think, okay, finally, they're getting this all together. And th- this is, this goes on and on and on. It really does take up about half the running time of the film right in the middle of it. But then when they start, the, these girls start to go up on stage to, you know, sort of parade themselves in front of the audience. They all get stage fright. Nobody wants to be a part of it. It all goes to hell. And then, of course, there's there's an actual fire happening. They hear the alarm. So everyone abandons this fireman's ball and goes and all the firemen go to put out this old man's house. that's on fire, but they can't get their new fire truck up the hill because it's snowy and they're ineffectually throwing snow onto it and, and doing nothing. And this guy's house just burns down completely. You know, some of the firemen have rescued some of his objects from inside, but he's just left with this, you know, it's completely burnt down house with his bed and, and some of his paintings and and stuff just sitting on the on the snowy ground outside and you know sort of continues in that vein and it just becomes more and more cynical and it's just a disaster and that's and that's the movie you didn't mention the the beatles cover done as a waltz (laughs) oh yeah the uh the this one girl's pearls fall off her neck her her necklace breaks and uh and uh, you know, kind of repeating the gag from the previous film, where uh, the one soldier has to chase his wedding ring under a table. They, this girl and and her boyfriend, go under the table to to retrieve the pearls. And then you know, this is the raffle table. And then uh, all everything, all the prizes on top are shaking around, and you know, all sorts of unsavory things are going going on under the table while while it's shaking and things are falling. And and the Beatles, uh, which which Beatles song is the band playing? Love from me to you. Oh yeah. <laughs> You know what this movie reminded me of? And maybe it's because I'm on season six, but it reminded me of The Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like an episode of The Sopranos, but without violence and like a Soviet comedic sensibility. But yeah. it's like seeing seeing all these people in color that we've like previously only seen in black and white and seeing their like ghastly pallor of middle-aged Czechoslovakian <laughs> bunch of dummies who've been put in a position of power and think they have the the right to tell people what to do and to be in, in, in charge of all this stuff. But really, they're, they're the last people in the world you should have in, in charge of this business. That too. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I so I so this is the movie where finally I'm I'm 100% on the same page with you. This movie was too mean, I thought. And I couldn't it was it lacked the nuance that I loved from all of the previous films and instead went for these sort of cheap, broad jokes, men, horny (laughs) (laughs) firemen, incompetent. Like you can call it political satire and 
it is. It's a sort of youthful rebellion movie, obviously. Like there's like literally scenes of entire crowds of young people screaming and tearing things down and like, you know, causing chaos for these older, older generation that's trying to keep it all together, but keeps messing it up with their own incompetence. This idea that like nobody wants to honor the past and the youth are uncontrollable, I think, even more so than it is about communism. And in that way, you know, the women kind of feel like lambs to the slaughter. The reason that this group ends up being too ashamed in front of everyone to come out, I think, is because they're like the sellouts. You know, they're the ones that are buying into the old guard way of doing things. And then the when push comes to shove, they, they don't show up for the old guard the way that, you know, was expected. But I just, it the whole thing felt a little bit... Like, I don't know if I'm picking up, like, it felt angry, this movie, more so yeah. than any of the previous ones. And I don't know if I, if that's just, you know, that that this point, Milos Forman had this sort of disregard for his own country or, or you know, his subjects uh, in the film or, you know, maybe for the film itself. It feels a lot flatter than the previous films, which is like a little bit of a bummer because I had really high expectations for this because I had only heard of good things. And I almost wonder if I hadn't, watch if i had watched this before i had seen all the other movies i might have enjoyed it better in that way it is very different it's definitely much more focused and tighter there's not a whole lot of time to just watch people be people which is what you know makes the rest of these films such a pleasure it's very much focused on watching these old men bungle everything not the kind of humanity in this one that there is in the previous films but i also can see why it is held up as you know gem of the Czechoslovak new wave. It's distinct. It feels like something completely new and angry and it's a notable film. It just doesn't give the kind of pleasure that the that the other ones do. I mean, some of it, I you know, when when it's funny, it's funny. Like I I kind of like the, you know this whole ball is being thrown around this idea that this older fireman they want to they want to honor him and they know that he's dying of cancer, but he doesn't know. And they don't want to tell him. And so it's like this like little old man that keeps trying to approach the stage, but it's not never the right time. And in the end, like they finally all come together after the whole place has gone to hell. And they're like, we have this finally, like we, we have this little, it's like a little ax they wanted to give him. And they do a whole speech and then they present it out in front and, and the box opens so they can't see what's inside. And it turns out somebody's already stolen this prize. <laughs> and then the, you know, the old guy is like, you know, thank you very much. He doesn't ever, he's too polite to mention it. I thought that was very funny. Like it was, it was cruel, but it was just like, just so stupid stupid after all of this and of course these guys still managed to like bungle this the the parts with the beauty contest i thought were definitely more borderline than previous stuff with women in his movies in a weird way i thought it actually was more respectful than it could have been (laughs) like i think i've seen much much worse when it comes to like you know and she when the first girl just suddenly like shows up and starts stripping her clothing off and she's in her underwear or she's in a bathing suit, she says. The camera doesn't linger that much actually on her undressing. After she's undressed, see everything pretty much, but it doesn't make a big deal. It like, you know, all the you get more of a reaction shot of the men than you do lingering on her, which I sort of appreciated. None of these movies are leering. Like it's played for her embarrassment more than anything else. Like I don't think we're asked to look lustfully at any of these women in any of the movies. It's just that we are asked to judge, oh, who's prettier, her or her? Who's prettier, her or her? Oh, she's 
she's ugly. She shouldn't, you know, get her off the stage. Like it's judgmental of women's looks, but not leering, I guess. But Bart, I hate to break it to you. Life is is very judgmental <laughs> of women's looks. <laughs> I mean, like, I just think that's such a daily problem. <laughs> that's such a daily thing that women have to, to consider every single day, all the time that I, I just... I, I didn't feel that he was saying, he was saying, look at these people judging these people. And, and, you know, it is showing women in a light of acknowledging the fact that they're being judged, but that's something that happens all the time. So it doesn't feel like it's something that he's pointing out. I mean, like, that's what you're doing every single time you watch a movie. You're, you're even in a way movies tend to avoid, you know, the, the horror of having you look at a disgusting woman that isn't like a perfect 10. So, <laughs> you know, like I think that it's being brought up to be questioned. I don't think it's being brought up to for you to, to ridicule, but there there is not enough obvious direction. So I think there's plenty of room for criticism, but I, I kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. I mean, I do think that to back up my own point is that the, I love the scene where the mother comes in to the room and just wants to stand there and watch. What are you guys doing behind the closed doors? And they're like, oh, God, we got to get this stupid cow out of here. You know, like they're just so dismissive and nasty to this mother who knows damn well what's happening. <laughs> and all she's trying to do is stand there and because and she's empathetic. There's never a point where you feel that that she's in the wrong in any sort of way. I mean, she's a little she's a little pushy, I guess. But, you know, like the men are really just total creeps and and that's just unequivocal like there's you know the it's relatable to to judge other people that's part of life <laughs> i think everyone thinks something at some point that i don't think that's like inherently evil like i don't think that you have to change that i mean it's not a nice thing but it's not you know we're not always nice all the time like that it is what it is but you that know. moment is one of the sharpest observations in the movie when the when the mother is standing there and these middle-aged men, old men who want to be in judgment of the beauty of these women, like they don't, you know, they're not embarrassed about what they're doing until they have this, this mother in the room and they right. realize, oh yeah, this is, this maybe this isn't, <laughs> maybe this is something we should be a little bit ashamed of what we're doing here. And it had never occurred to them until that point. So I, that was great. I mean, there are a lot of really sharp observations. There's the the argument they have towards the end where the guy who's in charge of, of making sure the raffle items don't disappear, he finds a head cheese in the purse of, of the of the woman who's helping him to, to keep an eye on this It's stuff. his wife, right? Is it his wife? I couldn't tell. It could be his wife. By the end of the evening, everything on the, or just about everything on the table has disappeared. So our main fireman says, okay, we're going to turn off the lights and just put all the items back on the table and, and, you know, we'll forget all about it. Just, okay. And, the, and, uh, you know, as, as they turn off the lights and, and then turn them back on, we see the, this fireman trying to put the head cheese. He's the only one who's trying to return something. He gets caught putting the head cheese back on the, on the table, which is now completely empty. And then they have an argument after that, that he's embarrassed. He passes out. But then there's an argument about, well, why would he try and put that head cheese back? It's it um, it makes us look bad. And it's so much more important to to not look bad than to be honest. And uh, there's also the whole argument they have about the, well, it's OK if people who bought raffle tickets stole something. But the, <laughs> the people who didn't buy raffle tickets and stole something, they're real. They've really done something wrong. So just this. You know, a lot of these justifications and arguments, like it's very, 
is really sharp satire. And I, I admire this movie a lot more than I enjoy it, I guess. Yeah, I think that's kind of how I feel. It was a little too cruel for me. I mean, like the stuff with the the guy's house burning down, it's sort of objectively funny, but it also is like just too depressing to consider. (laughs) So it's like there's a lot of stuff in this that's like, I think it's well executed. It's like, you know, as you said, sharp, but it's just like it's if you think about it in in a real way, which is it's hard not to because of the way it's shot, you know, and then because of the, the actors and because of how normal the whole thing looks and feels even though it's a sort of extraordinary circumstance it's hard to sort of divorce it from the actual cruel emotions of it maybe that's part of it is that like a lot of movies you watch and they feel like a fantasy because everyone's good looking and because everyone's some sort of star or something you know like something is everything's well perfectly crafted and placed and like this this feels a lot more raw to show these very normal looking people doing these like kind of messed up things that we all do, but we don't want to acknowledge. Right. Well, this was Milos Forman's final film that he made in Czechoslovakia. Eventually he made his way over to America and had a brilliant career there. His first film in America, 1971's Taking Off. I watched for the first time yesterday, last night, because I've been looking for an excuse to see this film that for, for so long was really hard to see. It was never out on home video, but, you know, finally managed to, to get to see it. I thought that movie was brilliant. Like, like it was a summation of everything he was trying to do in all of his Czech films. In a way, it's, it's a remake of the second half of, of the first film we talked about, uh, Concert, where it's audition of, of young women who are, are auditioning for, we don't even know what, but, it, you know, to, to become stars. And uh, it even has the girl who um, shows up, but then is too gets too much stage fright to actually sing and then it, it sort of crosses that with uh you know buck henry and 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 uh i don't need to get into that film but i i think it took a, a somewhat bigger budget and uh, an opportunity to make exactly the film that he wanted to make in america for for milos Forman to actually figure out how to put all of this stuff that he's been doing together into one film and get it exactly right and of course critics hated it but or some critics hated it it was Took him a while to make another film after that, but uh, yeah, if you like these these Milos Forman Czech films, don't do not avoid his first American film taking off. But b- before we end the episode, we'll, we have uh, there's one more film that we have to talk about: The Most Beautiful Age. This is directed by Yaroslav Papusek. And yeah, it's as you said, because he was a former sculptor. This is about sculpt- sculpting. <laughs> and uh, this is another movie, a bit, a lot like Intimate Lighting, but not as not as funny. Um, but it's, it's a movie that has absolutely no plot. It's really just a series of vignettes that takes place over the course of a few days at an art academy 
So we sort of see this like gaggle of old men who are waiting around to get chosen as a life model. And when they do, they sort of fall asleep in the chair. And there's like these little gags about trying to get them to stop snoring. We have these sort of bohemian sculptors who are kicking around and being smart Alex. They have their pretentious professor who likes to wax on about how everything is about life and death and beauty. Yeah, and then we have a couple of models that they go into, and one of them is this younger mother, the same actress from Loves of a Blonde, and she poses as a life model with her baby in tow, and then eventually her jealous husband shows up, and it's kind of amusing. She shows up and she's posing naked, but she's too modest to actually pose in any other pose except for literally she's standing there stark naked, but she has her hands over her one hand, one arm over her boobs. And then the other hand is just covering her crotch. So she's in this stooped over, you know, like really insecure position. And all the models are like, uh, all right, you know, like, I guess. And the teacher's like, actually, this is a this is a wonderful pose about, you know, like, I don't know, protecting yourself, the thing that can be seen and not seen. You know, it's like he's go waxing on about how this is actually, a, you know, a brilliant pose when it's like just totally like... <laughs> <laughs> like nobody would buy uh this this sculpture and then there's also like this old is he like a coal miner who has a head injury so he's doing life posing um fully clothed of course he brags to his buddies about like oh yeah i'm at the art academy it's all naked women and they go try and like spy on people and get caught and that's it i mean it's it's uh it's a weird bland <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what, how, did you like this one? I found it a little tedious. Yeah, I mean, the, the jokes didn't really land, and it was even more repetitive in the jokes than uh, than the most repetitive of the Milos Forman-directed ones. And yeah, I mean, I liked what it was going for. It's very much like setting up young people versus middle-aged people versus old people, and it's, I mean, it's really structured around it. They're, you know, you've got these three different models, and, and they're each these different ages, and I guess the point, the most beautiful age is not one of these generations thinks that they're at their best at this time. They see the other ages as somehow better than than the age that they are now. And it it tosses that idea around for an hour and a half. And it definitely has its moments. You know, it's done in the same sort of verite style as the as the earlier movies we talked about. But it, it feels a little different, a little more structured, a little more distant from the characters there's nobody we really get to know i guess i guess each of the models we get a little vignette of their lives but we don't get to know any of the sculptors at all and a little tedious a little uh a little distant it's hard it was hard to get sucked in but you know worthwhile if you like the rest of these movies this is it's one to check out but probably the probably the least of the six i would say well, it's it's distant because it's the camera. It looks like it's like across the entire room. <laughs> like, I mean, this that's the thing that was killing me about this. It's not that it was so bad, but I agree with you. It gets really tedious and repetitive, and it's not really as funny as it thinks it is, and it's not really as insightful as it thinks it is. It's not bad. Like, I didn't I didn't not like watching this movie. I thought it was like fine, but it just isn't. It doesn't have that much to say, really. And and it would be more fun as a slice of life movie if you could see anything. But all of the camera angles are like wide. Like you can't, you never, ever get a close up. And the only stuff that gets really interesting is when the life model woman, 
you get this sort of tangential situation with her husband because he comes busting in and he destroys all of the clay sculptures because he sees his wife has been posing naked. And then we get this like cut to them in their apartment arguing. And it's kind of the best part of the movie, even though it's sort of bland and (laughs) depressing because he's like a total shithead creep. But the fact that it's just slightly closer to characters, you can see what's happening. You can see their expressions. It's so weird to me that the rest of this is just so far away. Like, I I just don't understand that as a cinematic choice. And it really takes you out of it. There needs to be more editing and there needs to be more more of a pace to this. Because, yeah, it just kind of it doesn't punctuate anything. And I don't know if it probably thinks it's being more like real life by doing that, but instead it works against you because real life isn't seen through a camera. <laughs> so it just sort of breaks its own spell. But Well, it sounds like the, the moral to this story is, is you need to see every movie on, in the theater on a big screen. You seem to not really like movies that they, where you can't see a lot on your small screen. TV at home. (laughs) It's not that. It's just that, you know, you can't, I just don't think you can tell a character story without seeing the character's face. Like, I think the face is the most important part of any sort of slice of life character drama. And if you can't focus on expressions, you're not going to get anything through. You know, it's like if I'm talking to a friend they're sitting near at me. <laughs> we are having a conversation. I have more emotion and feeling for the person that's sitting close to me that I'm speaking with than I do for the person who is over their shoulder, several tables down, having the time of their life in the background. Like it's just, it's, it's really hard to connect to something that's so physically removed in that way. And I think that, you know, there is this, this general, paradox with film (laughs) all of the you know student filmmakers always talk about like i only use natural light right because it's it's easy (laughs) you don't have to think about it and you know there's a time and place for natural light but it's also like there's many times where to get something that looks more realistic is to set up a light is set up lighting and to cater to the camera's eye and stop pretending like you know what you're getting through a camera chip at this point is the same thing as what you're seeing through your own eyeballs like it isn't it's not the same lens so you know you have to cater to it and I just feel the same way about character dramas like you have to both be looking at things cinematically but also realistically like there's there's a there's a balance to that and in general I will say that I'm biased towards movies that have more close-ups on faces because I get that that's like probably all of the films if you want to like draw one thread through every single movie that I like the most it's probably that (laughs) Mm -hmm. like I like seeing people like I like knowing what's happening and and seeing their eyes like it, it, it frustrates me when I you know you're too far away but it can be done it just has to be done well and I just felt this this movie felt more student film e than it did fully realized especially in comparison to everything else that we did but it's it's stylistic i don't think that this is again i don't think it's a bad movie i don't think it's like a failure i just everything it was going for didn't land for me because of the choices that it made well i mean especially when you're making a film in this you know this form and school of filmmaking where you are 
hiring non-actors to just be themselves on film because they have colorful personalities and they're improvising their lines and just we're supposed to be drawn into them more than anything else. Yeah, to not establish those characters very well, to keep them at a distance is, you know, really working against what they're trying to do here. It uh, it didn't bother me in intimate lighting, I think, because I was starting to, you know, get familiar with some of these regular actors in this in the stable. The you know, so I knew, I knew several of the actors in that uh, already, but I I felt like I could really get a sense of their their personalities intimate in intimate lighting, even though it was you had trouble with that, and it was you know shot at more of a of a distance, but it was a, it definitely was a problem for me in the best age because there's, these aren't plot driven movies. We're not, we're waiting to see how these people act and see their expressions and see their emotions. And when that's all you're given to, to hang on to, you, you better, you better damn well show it. I think the most effective scene comedy wise in this is where, you know, the woman's posing naked and the baby is like a really small, it's like an infant basically like, or like, I don't know, like a, one-year-old or One something, or something yeah. and this baby is just crying and crying because it you know wants its mother and she's trying to, to talk to it and calm it down but she's stuck posing so she can't actually go over there and so all the art students start trying to like talk in soothing voices except they're all saying things like i'm gonna come over and smack you in the face you know, like <laughs> if you don't shut up I'm gonna kick you out like it's this sort of the the right amount of cruel humor that isn't to so cruel because the baby doesn't understand what they're saying anyhow <laughs> i thought that was funny but that was about it yeah it's another case where if we hadn't seen this same style done better in other films right before seeing this one probably would have a better opinion of it but but it, it pales in comparison, unfortunately. We've just sort of given a uh, you know a peek in, at uh, you know this this one corner, probably the most famous corner of the Czechoslovak New Wave. But this is just a piece of what this film movement has to offer. Pursuing truth on film is pretty standard across the board. But all of these different directors have have really different ways of getting that across. So I'm I'm definitely looking forward to tackling some of these other Czechoslovak new wave directors that go off in, in very different directions. But uh, can you make any conclusions yourself about the movement based on these films? Or I mean, I, I, I will say I'm, I'm very excited to get into the more experimental Czech new wave stuff, because that's the stuff that's really, you know, where my heart lies. But um, I, I loved a lot of these. I mean, like for me, I think Black Peter was was the best out of all of these with loves of a blonde pretty close second if not almost equal but yeah i mean like the thing i just uh, you know i was i was so impressed with again just how knowable and relatable all of this was and you know it's relatable in in unflattering ways it's relatable in older ways you know it's like it makes me it made me think about what it was like being a teenager it made me think about judging people but plus just like you know the 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 everyday sort of just contradictions and confusion that we all take for granted as, as like a given daily pain in the ass and, and putting a spotlight on those as being something that is the human condition and, and maybe even just what our lives are actually made up of as opposed to the more exciting 
plot-driven narratives that we all expect from film and that we all expect our lives to be, you know, the the grand love or the the dream fulfilled or the task conquered or whatever. And the truth of it is, is that really most of our lives are spent sitting around and um, <laughs> looking at women walking down the street or, you know, being bored at work or killing time and, and waiting, you know, like most of our lives are really about these little, you know, minute, boring observations. And that that's kind of what I loved about all of these, putting a spotlight on a part of life that really gets ignored maybe rightfully, but is also really more truthful than that A to B situation that we all look forward to, but, you know, either never comes or, or comes once. And then you have another, what, 60 plus years to, <laughs> to live. So, uh, you know, I, in that way, I really enjoyed these. I thought they were a really full portrait of, of life in that way, I guess. It sounds pretentious, but it's kind of what I liked about them. Well, and also, and this never occurred to me until just now, but, uh, and, and how you were describing these films. And I also hate to reduce them this way, but it, it kind of reminds me of the style of comedy in, in the, in Seinfeld. I mean, it's just little moments that are, that are truthful. These little things that we can all relate to that insignificant details in our lives that, you know, when you put a spotlight on them, you realize just how ridiculous, just how crazy we are, just how cruel we all are, just how entertaining the the trivial things in life really can be. So I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I hate to compare them stylistically to, to Seinfeld because that's just, you know, straightforward multi-camera sitcom stuff. But uh, I think the humor is coming from a similar place in the, especially in the more cruel films that we discussed. Definitely. I, what is life other than being like bullied by two random kids for absolutely no reason because you didn't say hello loud enough. Ahoy. Ahoy. <laughs> go, 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 You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.